Let's talk development. Episode 16. Hello, everybody. This is the Let's Talk Development podcast hosted by CDPR. My name is Tim Doberman. I'm an economist at the London School of Economics. And today we'll be talking about climate change in Pakistan. I have two guests with me uh, to join the conversation. Um, first is Dr. Saganda Shavastav. She is a lecturer at the University of Oxford as well as a researcher on the Climate Compatible Growth Program, um, partially run at the University of Oxford as well. With me as well is Dr. Faraz Hayat. He is a, a postdoctoral researcher uh, based in Pakistan and affiliated with the London School of Economics and the University of Chicago. Uh, jointly, all three of us also have worked very closely with CDPR and the International Growth Center in the past. So to kick off the conversation today, I want to begin by talking about the big news of the week in the next two weeks ahead, which is the international climate negotiations. So the Conference of the Parties, the COP negotiations, are starting in, in Dubai um, momentarily. And it's coming at a point in time where there is growing nervousness about the speed of progress in reducing emissions globally. Um, there's a growing anxiety about the need to finance um, both this mitigation as well as financing adaptation to the climate change, which we've already experienced and which we anticipate will only get worse. So the, the starting point for these negotiations is, is quite um, uncertain. And I think there's a lot of uh, debates between countries around the right mechanisms to support countries between the more developed economies, helping the developing economies in terms of financing. Um, but we won't get into all of the uh, aspects of the negotiations today, but really try to take what is central to the negotiations and apply that to, to Pakistan. And I think we'll frame our conversation around one of the, perhaps the biggest sticking point uh, at the conference, which is climate finance. So we know that a country like Pakistan We'll need to adapt to climate change. We know that it's as a very large um, country in terms of population, as well as a kind of growing economy, we'll need to mitigate its emissions in the future. And in both of these, climate finance will be will be central. And um, one of the key points to to think about is where in Pakistan, um, assuming such climate finance arrives, where will that um, be delivered, and how should it be delivered to achieve the biggest impacts. So to bring in my, my other guests and to start the conversation, let's start by thinking about the adaptation side. So perhaps I'll, I'll throw this to you, Faraz. Um, how is Pakistan being affected by climate change and how will it continually be affected by climate change in the future? And in particular, where do you see the adaptation needs for the country currently lying? Um, thank you, Tim, for that introduction. Um, so I think the data on this is quite clear. First off, climate damages in Pakistan are quite substantial. I was looking at this one report and it mentioned how since 2000, since the year 2000, there have been around 23 or so uh, big climate events with substantial losses in Pakistan. So essentially, Pakistan has been facing one big climate change-induced phenomena, which affects its economy adversely every year. Um, 
And the most recent example of that is the 2022 floods, which which had an effect on the economy of roughly $15 billion, which is actually a crazy number if you think about this, because um, putting it into context, Pakistan's GDP is $350 billion or something, and Pakistan's total tax collections are roughly 10% of that. And this translates to the effect of this uh, effect of this flood being roughly 40% of the total tax collections of the government wow. in a given year. And so the problem is clearly twofold. Number one, the magnitude of this suggests that at the for, for the end for the people who are actually being impacted, so the populations that are getting displaced are losing their agricultural land, etc. There's a massive impact on them. But at the same time, there is a massive fiscal challenge because the government simply would not have enough money to kind of uh, mitigate the effect or adapt to the effects or improve the resilience or uh, and behavior of the people uh, who are affected by this, uh, who are affected by these floods. So that's... Let's, so for so that, let's, yeah. let's unpack the, the most recent flooding event a bit more. So can you put it into context? How did this flood, um, in terms of its size and the magnitude of its impact, how does that relate to past flood events? And is this something that's really off the charts in terms of Pakistan's exposure to an event like this? Um, so it is definitely big. So I think other examples are of floods that happened, obviously, uh, in the later part of the 2000s. Those were also pretty massive and had a very disastrous impact on the economy on the whole. Um, but but essentially, Pakistan is faced with these types of flooding events, which are on this scale typically once every decade or every seven to eight years, which is obviously like a massive challenge because given all the, because if you look at Pakistan's growth trajectory, typically you have some form of growth happening and then a massive shock hits and you're back to square one and then you kind of have to recover all over again. So from that perspective, these massive, uh, these massive um, climate change events can cause a big uh, can cause big harm to the economy. And this one, I think, was has been particularly bad because it kind of struck right in the midst of when the country has been undergoing the serious financial has been undergoing these financial problems where they've been approaching yeah. the IMF, etc. So this kind of compounded the um, uh, the cycle, the negative cycle, in some sense. So there's definitely a sense that. The, whether it's the intensity or the frequency of natural disasters like flooding in Pakistan, um, there's a sense that this might be getting only worse in the future. So there's a, a long debate yes. on attributing this or particular weather events to climate change. But if you look on average, uh, there's strong consensus that precisely these types of heavy, heavy precipitation events or extremely uh, high amounts of rainfall in short periods of time are definitely becoming more common and more intense because of global warming and other changes in climate. So that's certainly an area where the Pakistan needs to be more um, prepared in the future. Another area which I'll talk about briefly, and then I'll ask Saganda to come in with, with a third area as well. Um, so agriculture is going to be very much impacted in Pakistan. So some of my research looks at how growing temperatures so greater temperatures during the year, but during in particular the growing seasons for certain crops, 
how that can very negatively impact yields. So what matters is, is not just that the growing seasons themselves perhaps are changing, even getting shorter. It matters that the temperatures during these times or the rainfall during these times is becoming more variable and especially more extreme. And for crops like wheat, which are very heat sensitive, um, this becomes a huge, huge challenge. So from my side, I see that another aspect where Pakistan will need to really adapt is in the agricultural sector, whether that means adopting new technologies, such as um, varieties of these uh, crops that are more heat tolerant, or even uh, adapting other, uh, let's say, protective investments that um, can lower the exposure to heat and, and direct sunlight for uh, some of these crops during the hottest moments. And and it goes without saying that floods are, are not particularly good for, for agriculture either. So from my side, I definitely see that climate change will pose huge impacts on the agricultural sector for Pakistan as well. Saganda, are there any other points you'd want to comment on the stage? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in terms of emission, uh, you know, Pakistan ranks uh, 158th uh, in the country list. So it is not a big contributor to emissions. But when it comes to vulnerability to climate change, Pakistan is the eighth most vulnerable country. So I think that ha that perspective is really important uh, when we think about climate justice or climate equity. Here's a country that hasn't contributed to the problem in a major way, but is actually amongst the top 10 when it comes to being affected by it. So um, I, I just wanted to put those numbers out there so that when we talk about climate change adaptation, we can understand that we are looking at a country that is in the top 10. And then when we will talk about finance, it's important to realize that it wasn't one of the major contributors. Yeah. And, and perhaps the most obvious impact is just the impact of higher temperatures on human bodies, the, the physiological toll from having greater temperature exposure, especially for the elderly, um, it can be, can be can be quite enormous. And a country like Pakistan, especially when it's it's grappling with um, trying to roll out access to energy, um, which mm -hmm. gives access to cooling, uh, for instance, that can only happen as soon as possible. Uh, that's really necessary uh, mm -hmm. to, to get some defense against these. And I think another thing is uh, thinking about the urban heat island effect in many cities across Pakistan. Um, the really interesting thing about South Asia is that we have a lot of innovations in passive cooling, which some of um, our traditional architecture uh, utilizes extremely well. And so a combination of low-tech solutions in cities in Pakistan can be extremely effective, which includes more green space, more trees, but also passive cooling infrastructure like wind corridors or, or water bodies that are dispersed across the city to just bring down that temperature. And again, there's a lot of um, traditional material science, which shows you that concrete obviously heats up a lot. But if, if you go to actually a lot of uh, traditional um mosques or or actually traditional uh, look at these traditional materials you'll see that they are much more resilient to temperature extremes uh you know you have these hava mahals etc so i think there's also a way to pursue climate change adaptation that is context specific and utilizes local innovation particularly to cool down these cities 
which are major hotspots, not only in terms of population density, but in terms of reaching extremely high temperatures because of the urban heat island effect. Yeah, that's great. So I think there's a lot of lot of ideas and avenues there, which we'll get into on the, the financing side. Um, but just to summarize so far, it's clear that natural disasters, agriculture, um, just human exposure to higher temperatures and many other issues if you haven't had a chance to discuss, all of these will will be affected by climate change and that poses a huge adaptation challenge for the country. But before we get into financing solutions for adaptation, let's talk about the other side of the coin, which is mitigation. Um, so clearly, um, there's a sense that Pakistan has a development imperative, and it should and rightfully should emphasize uh, poverty eradication and getting its country um, growing and kind of converging towards a higher income country. Um, but at the same time, there's going to be the reality that countries like Pakistan will not be able to um, admit in the same way. Um, and Neither should they. I think that's the key point. They, they, they might be able to in terms of having the technologies like coal around them. Um, but I think, at least from my opinion, which we can have a discussion around, um, there's a lot of newer, let's say, technologies and exciting um, innovations that will allow a country like Pakistan to achieve this development imperative while having a lower impact on its local environment in terms of you know, things like air pollution as well as having a lower impact on the global climate. But let's first start thinking about what are the sectors and areas for Pakistan where it can make progress in, in reducing emissions and reducing the environmental impacts um, from these economic activities. So Faraz, maybe you can lead. I know you've done quite a bit of research on the energy sector in Pakistan, as well as looking at um, emissions from industries and, and other sectors. Yeah, so I think I would first want to slightly motivate this mitigation argument slightly more because I think one key challenge that prevents um, effective policy to take place in terms of mitigation is this very notion that um, is this very notion that Pakistan is not really like a big emitter, so Pakistan should not undertake many mitigation activities. And I understand the trade-off between growth as well as usage of cheap energy sources to fuel growth. Um, and so that that is a tough decision. But I think what is also uh, important to like what the policymakers here need to realize is that global policy is kind of shifting towards um, is shifting towards reduce reduction of CO2 emissions. So one concrete example of that is the EU carbon border adjustment mechanism, right? Where now they're introducing policies which are going to ask importers into Europe to kind of um, discuss uh, or to uh, to reveal what the, uh, what the CO2 emissions in their value chains have been. And they would have to, let's say, buy some form of credits to offset that uh, that amount of uh, CO2 emissions that their value chain causes. And 
even if Pakistan does not do the mitigation activities, let's say Pakistan does not do it, let's say we are living in that world, but in the, but in that world, if India, Bangladesh, Vietnam, these other countries are actually doing that, then Pakistan, the Pakistani firms are going to be at a competitive disadvantage. So there's like a big policy reason from a long-term planning perspective to start thinking about mitigation and actually carrying it out to make sure that Pakistani firms remain competitive in the long run. So that's one framing of why mitigation is actually important. In terms of where um, emissions can be reduced most effectively, so I was looking up a few stats. I think um, this is coming from the country's GAG inventories, uh, the greenhouse gas emission inventories, uh, back, which is submitted in 2022, but it's from the 2018 data. Roughly 44% of emissions happen in the industry and transport sector, right? And 46% happen in agriculture, the remainder being some other small uh, uses and stuff. Um, and within, uh, the, within the industry, primarily it is either the manufacturing industries and it is the power sector itself. And so few areas where Pakistan, there is a lot of potential for Pakistan to improve is number one, uh, some form of mechanism where the manufacturing industries lower their emissions. And then the other one is naturally the power sector, which is very reliant on fossil fuels. And if you're thinking about the energy intensity and uh, what fraction of um what fraction of Pakistan's power sector's capacity is is from renewable and clean sources. At the moment, I think the number, if you include renewables, hydro and nuclear, is roughly 40% of the total capacity uh, on this. And then, but Pakistan also a, has committed to increasing this share to roughly 60% by, 20, uh, by 2030. So there is this gap of 20% that needs to be filled in. Which is important, and then the area where this can be filled in the most is with technologies such as solar and wind, because they constitute only six point seven percent of the total capacity at the moment, which is a very small number. Yeah, absolutely, I think I think we'll go into a discussion on some of the constraints that these technologies, whether it's solar or wind or or anything else, face in terms of being adopted in Pakistan at scale. Um, but let's maybe continue on a little bit on the just sources of, of emissions in Pakistan um, and the mitigation of them. So maybe, Sagana, you can tell us a bit more about... So obviously, there's a technology element here in terms of do you build a solar plant? Do you build a coal plant? Um, but perhaps what can be done for the, the factories today or even the power plants today to improve their efficiency and to lower their emissions that are associated with their production are there is there much kind of understanding about what they can do and how much they might even be able to do already that that could lower the emissions that come from their activities sure so um just a little bit of context there uh, electricity is one of the most important inputs into the production process for any economy and especially for pakistan where we have uh, energy-hungry industries like textiles and, and various types of manufacturing. So thinking about the cost of electricity is absolutely fundamental because if you lower the cost of electricity, then you can increase the efficiency of these firms. 
Now, when we think of electricity costs, a very important piece of context is from 1976 up to the present day, every year, the cost of solar has fallen by 20%. And this has been a very continuous decline. And in 2016 or 2017, roughly, solar became cheaper than coal in terms of a levelized cost of electricity. So this is considering all aspects that contribute to the overall cost of electricity from solar versus coal. So I think this is very important because while for solar, we have been seeing a 20% year-on-year decline in costs, for coal, we have seen a very stagnant picture. And this makes sense. Coal is a very old technology at this point. Uh, you know, whatever innovation had to happen has happened. Um, and we don't see these, in, you know, incredible caustic lines. So when we have a technology which is getting exponentially cheaper over decades versus one that is stagnating in terms of its cost, it's simple logic to see that if you want a cheaper energy future, the way to go is to invest and build up your affordable forms of electricity. And that in itself will translate into major gains for your industry and for your firms. So already uh, we we can think of this as an implicit cost. By not using solar-based electricity, your households and firms are paying at least 10 to 20% more. Um, And that's an implicit cost in the current system. Now, there's complications in Pakistan's case, because if you do build out solar, we need to make sure that Pakistan gets the advantages of that cheap technology and to ensure that the contracts are written in a way so that the gains are passed on to firms and households. Um, It can very well be the case that even though solar from a technological viewpoint is the cheapest, those savings are not actually passed on to the firms and the consumers. So that's a separate issue we can explore. But coming to Tim's kind of major question, when we really think of firms and productive efficiency, we need to remember the central role of energy in any form of production. Yeah, and I think whether that's methods to improve the energy efficiency of existing production processes or even the efficiency of um, thermal inputs and, and power generation. I think there's a lot that, that can be done to um, improve the efficiency of some of these plants. Uh, I think there's, it gives the sense that there's both kind of quick wins in terms of uh, making progress towards mitigation by working with industries today um, to adjust some processes, as well as a lot of the bigger necessary longer term changes uh, that will be required, for instance, to um, have a rapid expansion or rollout of, of solar energy, for instance. So let's let's take a step back. We've discussed the adaptation challenges. We've discussed um, areas where mitigation is possible. Um, I think all of this at its core comes with a big investment need behind it, whether that's private investment or public investment. And I think this is where the international climate finance angle really comes into play. Um, Whether that's going to be grant-based financing to help Pakistan's agricultural sector adapt or to uh, lower its emissions from agriculture, um, 
But in most cases, it's probably going to be some mixture of public-private um, financing that will allow, say, Pakistani industries or Pakistani power plants to um, become cleaner in the way that they operate. So what I think would be interesting is, so imagine Pakistan finally gets its tranche of climate finance that it's been asking for for, for decades. Um, how should, should Pakistan allocate some of this money? So let's think about what are some of the particularly promising areas, um, whether that's solar or anything else, that we think um, additional public investment or kind of additional investment period is needed. Um, and in particular, what are the constraints for some of these promising areas that are, that are potentially holding back um, their adoption? So why don't we first start with solar, just to build on what that Sakanda has been saying. Um, so for us, when you look at the solar sector in Pakistan, um, what jumps out as you as some of the key challenges and some of the key policy changes that might need to happen to, to really open up the sector for for investment? And then I'll ask Sagama to come in right away afterwards. I can I can come in. So I think one very poignant and slightly sad fact is that if we look at satellite imagery um, um, of the Punjab border, what we can see is on the Indian side, there is huge construction of massive solar farms. And some of these solar farms are providing the cheapest electricity India has ever seen. And then you move across the border. You can do this exercise on Google Earth if you want. And you see that on the Pakistani side, there is absolutely nothing. Um, and, and that is striking because the conditions in terms of the technical potential for solar does not change across the border. So it's not like suddenly you cross over to Pakistan and your sunshine looks different. It's more a question of the investment climate and also the the kind of role of um, your multilateral development banks. So here I would like to highlight that, you know, we need to, on the side of the multilateral development banks, there needs to be a real focus on how we can, uh, these banks can invest in Pakistan and help de-risk and enable private sector finance to come off the back of that. So to give you an example of what happened in India, the World Bank actually set together, a, put together a very large loan facility for rooftop solar at a time when there was close to negligible rooftop solar in the Indian market. And thanks to this massive World Bank loan facility, the private sector got on board and this rooftop market for solar started emerging in India. But it really required the World Bank as a first mover in order to sh demonstrate that there is potential in this market. I think we should hold our multilateral development banks to similar standards in Pakistan, where genuinely there might be a level of risk that is too high for the private sector. So these multilateral development banks or even philanthropic institutions have a key role to play as market makers to give the first set of loans to demonstrate that these projects can indeed be feasible and can work in this context and to unravel information about the profile of risk and returns. Um, so I think that's something on the side of the multilateral development banks. 
Now, going on the side of the government, it's also important that they create an environment and a narrative that is consistent with attracting investment. So you, you don't want to be doing policy flip-flops. You want a very clear message that there is support for green industries. And if that message is strong and clear, you're actually boosting investor confidence, which can actually help lower your risk. This is very important because going back to a point that Faraz made earlier, the world is in a green race. Um, green industries are growing um, and your fossil fuel industries are, are sunsetting. So if you want to partake in the future, if you want to do what China did, where in a span of very few years, it captured the global solar market and became extremely competitive, you need to have a very clear message as a government, which is investor friendly. And I think that's something that can be done. So we're seeing both sides of the coin where we need more climate finance. We need our multilateral development banks to come in areas with, which have higher risk. And conversely, we need the government to create investor-friendly narratives. Um, it could be setting up a special economic zone that, that has more favorable conditions. It would be making sure that the policy narrative is very clear and concise over the need and the support for these high growth green sectors. I think Saganda was so eager that she jumped ahead of Faraz in answering. Um, but no, I think that's a lot of great points there. And maybe to add one or two things from my side regarding why is the environment so risky in terms of investment for, especially in, in the power sector in Pakistan. And it, it really relates to the issues that are very well known. Um, even at the kind of daily level around circular debts and uh, a sector which is really struggling to stay afloat financially, that cascades up and affects the ability for them to pay these power producers on time, which kind of raises additional costs on them. And in an environment where you add in things like high rates of inflation, broader macroeconomic instability, um, especially with respect to, say, the, the currency exchange rate, all of that creates the sentiment of investors requiring a lot of safeguards or, or guarantees in order to come in because um, otherwise their their costs of capital are very high. So I think that's definitely a core area um, that is driving this and one of the bigger challenges to rapidly bring in investment. But for us, any further thoughts from your end on promising areas that um, climate finance could play a role, whether that's on adaptation or mitigation? Yeah, so just to add on to the power sector stuff, and then I may say some things uh, outside of the power sector as well. Um, I think what you guys have been saying is essentially completely on the point because one of the issues that power, uh, that um, investors into the power sector worry about is that because the entire market structure is government-owned, essentially, um, a lot of the times, let's say, payments are not being made. Right, and payments are getting delayed for the power producers, uh, precisely because of some of the circular debt and electricity theft and collection loss issues, etc. So, so that's obviously like a pretty big challenge in terms of uh, how do you get the investors confident that they will actually be getting uh, their money back, and that's that's it's one of the biggest challenges um, in this sector. Whereas you guys highlighted, um, international climate finance can potentially play a role. Um, outside of the power sector, when we're thinking about adaptation and mitigation, 
I think I will talk <clears throat> briefly on like one thing that the government can do and one thing that potentially, which I think that the international climate finance should do. I don't know whether <laughs> that's feasible or not. But from the government's point, I think like the way we want to frame the adaptation issue, it, one way of framing the adaptation issue is that we need to enable the population to become more resilient, um, especially, and this is especially true because most of the people who are in Pakistan are extremely poor and they just cannot even respond to, let's say, if a disaster is about to hit them. And so how do we make sure that these people have uh, can actually can actually resist the effects that the climate change imposed phenomena is going to put on them? Um, one of the channels for this is obviously uh, something that I think Pakistan should invest even more seriously in, which is BISP. They already have an excellent, Pakistan has an excellent cash transfer program. And I think the amount of cash transfers that they actually do to poor households in the event of a climate change induced phenomena affecting them, that amount needs to go up. Um, it needs to be higher than whatever very minute amounts that they give to them at the moment. Additionally, I think this needs to be comp needs to be made slightly more modern in the sense that they need to use some form of predictive analysis and stuff like that to kind of predict that, okay, we think that if upstream some massive floods have happened, we know that downstream here are where the floods are potentially going to happen, then they need to provide money to the people ex ante as opposed to ex post the flood. This would essentially make sure that people have the money precisely when they need it the most. And so this is one of the ways that, for example, an existing very good program can be improved even more to kind of improve the adaptation. And over here, again, I'm sure Pakistan can seek international uh, finance if money is required for these activities or how to build the, how to build such form of like uh, structures where such analysis, predictive analysis can take place. Um, so that's obviously one area. Uh, the other, uh, the other area actually, which is also kind of Going back to the same point of energy costs, which Saganda mentioned um, earlier, is that, that let's say there's a heat wave in Pakistan at the moment and, and temperatures are high. What technologies do people actually have available which are feasible, which they can use to kind of resist the effect of high temperatures? At the moment in the country, if you are consuming, let's say, 230 kilowatts, kilowatt, kilowatt hours of electricity, which is like consuming which is like running two fans and two light bulbs over a period of a month, you use up roughly 8 to 10% of your monthly income, which is an insane amount. It's extremely big. And that needs to come down. So you, that can only be achieved as the power sector issues kind of get resolved, as you guys were mentioning, through international climate finance. Um, and then finally, more broadly, from a global perspective, I think there is, I think in, in these COP, uh, uh, these talks and uh, this Paris Agreement, et cetera, people have been talking a lot about a loss and damages climate fund. I think more important than a loss and loss and damages fund, there needs to be some form of sovereign insurance facility. Um, and the reason for that is that within a country, doing some form of climate insurance is extremely hard because the risks are super correlated. And what you want to do is that you want to leverage the fact that if you, that countries are located uh, across the globe at vast distances and the risks that they're exposed to are fairly uncorrelated. And so you can diversify 
uh, diversify the risk away in some sense. And that sort of facility is something which I think would be more politically feasible as well. And it would be far easier for a developed nation to potentially put some money into that as opposed to just paying some form of reparation money where the developing countries like Pakistan also pay some form of a premium to get some money in case a big disaster hits them. And this will also solve a lot of informational and trust issues because these agencies could directly be in contact with on-the-ground uh, emergency response teams, for example, and can immediately disburse funds as the uh, as the catastrophe strikes. Yeah, so yeah. That's what I think, yeah. I think those are a lot of like, truly excellent ideas from both sides and like really quite substantive and innovative uh, both policy and investment um, approaches to to help both the adaptation and the mitigation side of things, and and I must say a bit more substantive than things that have been quite overhyped, like green hydrogen or even carbon offset markets in, in Pakistan. Um, those are topics for perhaps another day. I think we've 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 run. Suganda wants to come in final word, and then then we'll, I'll summarize the conversation. Sure. Uh, just some myth busting on green hydrogen and carbon offsets on green hydrogen. The biggest myth, and this will be common knowledge to the engineers who are listening, is that it is not easy to put hydrogen through your gas network. Uh, hydrogen is extremely combustible. It will be extremely costly to repurpose your gas network to make it safe. And I keep hearing these kind of narratives that you can just use existing infrastructure. Um, and it's important that we put some science behind it and look at the fact that we're talking about very different substances. So green hydrogen is actually a very costly thing to do. And when we think of at least decarbonizing electricity, it's much better to use renewable electricity directly for power generation than to use it to split a mo water molecule to make green hydrogen. Um, that's just many more steps and many more steps where you can lose uh, efficiency. Um, maybe for things like fertilizer, uh, it, it makes sense, but we need to be very careful about um, thinking through the costs and then thinking through the applications. So in hard to decarbonize areas like fertilizer or, or shipping, there can be a case. But for electricity, perhaps not. And finally, on carbon offsets, we have a crisis of credibility. Um, there is, uh, there's a whole host of uh, carbon offsetting platforms that claim to be um, saving on CO2, but not really doing that. Um, and this has come to a boiling point a few months ago with huge scandals about the quality of offsets. So this is a time when we need to be very cautious. Um, a lot of people are very hawkish about carbon offsets. And the last thing that anyone wants to be embroiled within is an yet another carbon offset scandal. I think there's a sense that perhaps there might be short-term demand for offsets, but no one really sees this as a long-term solution, especially on the big um, industry side. And so perhaps it's a short-term market opportunity, but no longer term. Uh, it's unclear uh, how much of an attractive market that is. So we've covered everything from the risks that Pakistan faces from climate change to the needs for it to lower the emissions and environmental impacts from its economic activities, down to thinking about how you know, both public, private, local, international, governmental, non-governmental 
which is the same as public, private, um, have, can have important roles in, in facilitating these transitions, whether that's bringing in solar energy, whether that's boosting social protection mechanisms in Pakistan to enable the poor to be better protected um, against future climate events. So I think there's a lot of food for thought there. And the only thing for me to end with is thanking um, both uh, Faraz and Saganda for for joining this conversation. And it's been really a insightful, uh, ideas-filled talk. So thank you very much. Thank you. Yep. Thank you for inviting us.